Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by Wine, Women, and Words, the podcast. Wine, Women, and Words is a casual show where book lovers can pour themselves a glass of wine, kick back, and talk books, pour a glass, and join them. It was launched in June 2016, and it's hosted by Diana, who lives in L.A., and Michelle, who lives in Chicago, and they welcome special guests from the literary world, from authors and editors to public speakers and everybody in between. They also select a book, which they read and discuss throughout the month. At the end of the month, their spotlight author joins the show for a special hour-long interview to talk about the author's characters, plot twists, writing process, and more. Oh my gosh, I have to like go listen to this podcast all the time. Anyway, thank you to Wine, Woman, and Words for sponsoring this podcast. Jamie Figueroa is the author of Brother, Sister, Mother, Explorer, a novel. Jamie received her MFA in creative writing from the Institute of American Indian Arts. Her writing has appeared in Epic, McSweeney's, and American Short Fiction. She is the recipient of the Truman Capote Scholarship and a Breadloaf Scholar. Borica, by way of Ohio... Jamie lives in New Mexico. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Absolutely. Thank you for your interest in the novel and for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. And you have such a great cover. Brother, sister, mother, explorer. It's gorgeous. I love it. Were you so excited? I was so excited to see that. You know, it's a little bit nervous, right? Nervous energy when you're waiting for the cover. Because we all know that a book is not judged by its cover. And also everyone wants to have a beautiful cover that reflects what's inside. And I couldn't have been happier. Wow. Exciting. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you. I got to watch you on the media lunch that who put on catapult or something. Didn't I watch you on some? You did. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, Oh, that's so fun. I definitely want to talk to her. So, and your book was beautifully written. Fantastic. And also the way you wrote about the mother child relationship was just so beautiful, especially the, the grief. But anyway, let me, you start first. Why don't you tell, (laughs) let me go back a little bit. Jamie, could you please tell listeners what your book is about? Oh, Zimmy, that's always a, <laughs> it's always a wonderful question when it's, when it feels really complicated and multi-layered, right? You know, I think at the core, this is the weekend where generational trauma is interrupted for this family, right? And in order to, to fully get there and to have readers take in this experience of longing and of grief for me was to do it in ways that disrupted reality, Right. So aspects and elements of magical realism to kind of sneak past our own defenses and the ways in we protect against fully feeling, right? And it's a book about a tremendous love that both a brother and a sister have for each other and for their mother who's recently passed. You know, it's also about changing the focus, right? Who's privileged in the story? What narratives are privileged? What narratives get included? And also really thinking about the importance of what we're not used to hearing in the overculture and mainstream society, right? And I didn't want the reader to be passive 
a spectator, right? So I have this narrator that's constantly poking at the reader and also wanting to support the reader's experience of this really intense weekend, right? So that's that's the beginning. That was a good one. <laughs> that was a good answer. I could have just let that keep going. That could have been our whole our whole discussion. Well, this book starts with like such a bang and it just really is hard to like tear yourself away because the language you use and the intimacy and everything. And I was hoping I could just read a passage. Would you mind if I did that? Oh, I would love to hear you. You said, you wrote, the day after Rosalinda's death, Rafa and Rufina had both lain on the cold tile floor of the living room. Neither of them able to will themselves to stand, put a match to kindling, and tend to fire that would thaw them. Instead, they remained numb, grief weighted at the edges, sniffing the boundaries of their bodies waiting to be let in. The house had no choice but to watch. And then later you say, with each week, then each month, Rafa had lost more weight, paled further, spoke less. Each new day had demanded he endure. He lit one of Rosalinda's cigarette butts, stained with her fuchsia lipstick, and let the smoke fill his nose, laced with the scent of her headache-inducing perfume. He could not get enough of his mother, the woman who was no more. Oh, so beautiful. So Thank beautiful. Thank you so much. I, it's an honor and a pleasure to listen to you read it. Oh, please, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> where did this come from, from you? Where did this sense of loss, where did you tap, what did you tap into to write this why this narrative? Why this book? Why this passage? Yeah. So, you know, I have to tell you that about a year before this opening scene sort of rose to my consciousness, almost like a remembered dream, mm. right? And, and that's how it appeared. It appeared as me remembering this scene on the plaza, these two behaving in this way and fully flushed demanding my attention and me thinking to myself, what in the world is going on here? And also right from the start, the angel in its mess of, of, of being was right there also. So it was really a matter of me leaning in. And that beginning paragraph or a few paragraphs came almost completely whole. The presence of these characters and the language went together. About a year or so before this remembering of this dream or this opening scene, I spent some time in Portugal for the first time in Lisbon. And I spent some time around this notion of saudade, this longing and melancholy, right? It was a really incredible trip that also introduced me to some writers like José Luis Pejoto and Fernando Pessoa, got a little bit more familiar with his poetry. And this kind of bittersweet haunting of that which we love and have lost, right? Wow. So I had been kind of marinating in that, spending time in Lisbon for several weeks, and then and then a year later having this, this image flush forward. And then you know how it is, the deeper that you write into the particular, even though these are characters who are, I'd like to think, beyond me, there's an element of emotional autobiography, right? And I'm not the first writer to say that where the actual emotional teeth can grip because of my own experience, right? So, so of course that's there. The, the, the deep love and loss of a sibling, right? Doesn't look like that necessarily, but having that sense of fracture in that relationship. And, you know, even though sometimes we don't actually lose someone physically in our family and in our life, sometimes we lose them because of, they become another thing, right? They, they go through incredible change. They endure mental illness. They endure just their own transformational journey. 
And sometimes that puts them closer to us and sometimes that puts them further away from us. And so that also was very much, I think, at play at the the bones of this story. That's so true. I mean, the way we experience loss, grief is just one type of loss, right? But the grief you can feel is not just because of death. Like there's so many people, particularly mental illness, but yeah, I've experienced that too. And even dementia, right? Losing elderly people as they slowly fade away and they're there, but they're not there or everything. I mean, even a breakup or, I mean, there's so many ways to lose people or animals or things that you love. It's almost endless. It's amazing to even get up in the morning, honestly, when you think about it. It's true. It's true. And and actually, right, that's what's happening to Rafa. Like, how does he get up? Yes. And and what you're saying is absolutely true, Zibi. It's this, I don't recognize you anymore. You are here physically, but yet you're not here. So how do we even talk about that? That phenomenon that happens and that we're deeply affected by. I mean, in a, in a sense, that's the, that's the, the baby and the mother still hanging around, right? Yep. What happens when the person that's right in front of you is a ghost of sorts, but, but not, they haven't passed on. How do we reconcile that kind of relating? I know it's so neat that you chose to approach it this way. You know, there are like other, I mean, there's so many books out there of people who have gone through this type of experience, right? In memoir form or a memoir about, you know, their spouse to Alzheimer's or, you know what I mean? Like there are different depictions of this like slipping away, right? But to do it with this magical realist bent is so neat. It's just, it's just really a neat way to put something that people experience in a new way. Like, and that's what literature is all about, right? Getting people to look at things in a new way because we all like open our eyes and have the same day, essentially, right? The world is there, but getting us to shift how we see it. Sorry, I'm being like ridiculous. This is like totally. (laughs) No, this is, this is, this is absolutely perfect. And it reminds me of a story. I don't know if you're familiar with my short story by Amy Bender called Marzipan. And it's about a family and the father in that story wakes up one morning and he has a hole in his middle, like a literal hole in his middle. He's lost his, his, his mother recently, right? And so the daughters are trying to figure out what's going on with their father, that he has this hole in his middle that they can see through, that he, puts, he lifts his shirt up and there's the hole. And the whole story is them understanding this hole and who he is now and his sense of loss and this, this bit of Mars pan in the freezer that they take out. And reading that story, it's, it's such a great reminder, again, of what literature can do. And that is sneak past all of the protective layers and the boundaries of us saying, you know, I I don't want to read a story about grief Mm -hmm. or I've already read enough stories about whatever, heartbreak, loss. How do we present it in a way that is mesmerizing, magnetizing, and gets beyond, again, those really strong defenses of honestly not wanting to feel and also during this time, what we need to do more and more, even though it hurts like hell, is to feel as much as we possibly can, because that is going to drive all of the changes that we need to drive. It's not going to be from numbing ourselves out, pretending things that don't exist, getting more distance, getting more dislocated, right, from ourselves and from each other. So it's another great function of, of stories and of literature to 
remind us of our humanness, right? Of our sense of compassion and, and that deep essential quality that we must find our way back to. And that is to being relational beings. I want to like stand up and clap. Yes, I totally <laughs> agree with that. I totally agree. I mean, that's really what it's all about. Like human connection, loss, love, being there, observing, all of it. That's it. I mean, without all of that feeling and connection, what is left? I don't know. Right? It's true. And also I have to say, to, to sort of push a little bit further, like the novel does, is that we have to open up even beyond that, Right. Yes. We're in a time of climate emergency. So how do we realize that everything around us is in relationship with us, even if we have neglected mm-hmm. for decades or whole life to acknowledge that fact? Well, and I think these days it's hard to ignore that. I mean, I think if COVID has done anything positive, which it hasn't, but you know, it is at least made it incontrovertible what's going on in the world and how the effects of everybody staying home have so benefited the physical world. And, you know, it's like, you can't not pay attention to that anymore. You know, and I think especially in this time of loss and grief, like everyone globally has lost something, which is their last life, right? Like we've all lost what it was, even though it was different for everybody. We have to let go of the fact that like, we thought that that was life and life would go on like that and it won't. And like that fundamental belief is, is, has been robbed of, you know, so how do you make sense of that? So it's almost like everybody is going through this and you're right. Not everybody wants to acknowledge it and not everybody wants to be like, oh, I should read a self-help book on this because like I'm mourning, you know, the future that I thought I was going to have. Right. But if you get into a story about it, you might be like, oh, okay. Right. And if we look at fables and folktales and myths, and and we listen to folks like Martin Shaw, who talks about we're going through sort of a a planetary initiation, right? And what does that mean? And what does that look like? And also folks like Michael Mead, who also deals with myth and the, the what's behind and what's underneath. And really listening to sort of what they have to say from their perspective about the symbolism and the metaphor of what's going on and what happens when a world comes to an end, right? In a sense, our world has come to an end and we've been lodged on this precipice in this great fear about the world coming to an end without without recognizing our deeper knowing, which is then it begins again. So when it begins again, how do we participate in the remaking of that world and that reality, right? What are the questions that we ask ourselves? How are our our values put forth? What poems do we draw from, right? What stories do we take along to help us to remember that which will, again, keep us at our most best and fullest expression of, of our humanness? Okay. So I know that you are an author, but tell me about the rest of your <laughs> of your life and ambition and whatever, because I feel like if you are not already a teacher, you need to be, or some sort of leader, like inspirational something, podcast, or anything. What what else? What is like, what are you doing now? What are, what are your plans? Like, how are you, what, what else here? Yeah. I'm, I, I teach, I'm an assistant professor at the Institute of American Indian Arts here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So that's a, one of the only tribal arts colleges in the nation. And it's, 
It's tremendous. It's tremendous because this is a place where we are constantly decolonizing the idea of education, looking at how education has been used as a tool, looking at all the ways in which learning happens, and then staying in relationship with our students and encouraging them to, to really fortify those aspects in their own lives, their, where they come from, their own tribal communities, and also for the students who are not Indigenous. But when I sit with my students, I look at them and I see them as they are sovereign beings who will not, under my watch and care, be harmed by education, but be transformed, hopefully, into the greatest expression that they can be through this learning and through them learning to value their own voices, which have been silenced for so long. Right. I'm getting getting goosebumps because I love it. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> right. Because I found myself after a 15-year break from college and many attempts at many different institutions at the Institute of American Indian Arts. And the first thing that I noticed taking a tour of the campus was like, who are all these brown women in charge? Right. This was like, you know, in the early 2000s, something that was really new especially from me coming from the the rural central Ohio, the Midwest. And then every time I went to class, no matter what class it was, I was constantly being asked to bring forward who I am, where I come from, my ancestors, my extended family, their stories, their perspectives. Anytime before I was in the classroom in a, in a place of higher education, I was asked to compartmentalize myself. And so I went through kind of wilting, right? When your roots aren't strong, I feel, my experience has been, your voice can't be strong, right? You're pulling from your family. You're pulling from where you come from. You're pulling from those stories in addition to your own reality right now. So how do we, again, come from a place of wholeness and connectedness and really being in relationship with? So I was fortunate to have professors who met me for coffee and went over my stories line by line because they were invested in me, right? Many different opportunities to go to conferences and then to come back and decompress around. I was the only person of color, again, in that workshop room. And my story being workshopped got sidelined instead of talked about on the basis of craft, like everyone else's story, right? It got sidelined by its cultural content, or using non-English words, right? And so I had a place where I could go to to process this through and talk about this and continue to go to become really strong. So it's a place unlike any other place. It has given me so much, and I am immensely grateful to the students that I went to school with, the alums, the mentors, the professors, the visiting writers, and the students that I'm working with now. You know, I've kind of ventured out into the world. I did some teaching in the MFA and interdisciplinary arts program at Goddard and spent some, you know, time in other places, wonderful places, but there's no place like I for me. Wow. Well, you should like make that into an ad for that school. <laughs> you should, you can take this video. I'll send you the file. And, uh, do what you will with it. What are your roots? Like, can, can you share what your background is? Not to take away from the conversation, but just as an extra layer. Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, I'm, I'm speaking to you as someone who's not culturally confident, and I'm just going to be very upfront about that. Okay. I identify as a Boricua, as, a, as an Afro-Taino woman, as a woman of color, as a mixed race person. And what I do when I say that is I privilege the aspects of identity that have been attempted to be erased, right? So in the family, it was like, oh, say you're from Puerto Rico, say you're Span- of Spanish descent, right? which is a very small part of the story. So my work as an adult has been to really include those family members, those ancestries that were hidden, shamed, ignored, right? And going from the island to the US mainland, this masking happens or can happen, right? Where it's like the hand of assimilation is so heavy and it is so destructive that you know my mother's life was spent assimilating and she would tell me in these small rural ohio towns that we lived in to not draw any more attention to myself because i already stood out right this is survival speaking through my mother's experience this is assimilation this is colonization happening in the mid 90s right and I internalized that. And so I censored myself. I read literature and thought I need to mimic the voices that actually don't resemble me in order to be heard and in order to be successful. And so, so my experience as an adult writing further and further into myself and into my world and into my wholeness has been has been to include those aspects as best I can and constantly learning. And, you know, when I think about childhood memories, it's rural Ohio, you know, it's walking county roads between cornfields and, you know, feed corn, soybeans, it's pig farms, right? It's like watching the Amish buggies on the road. It's all of that. And, And also that experience gave me very much an outsider perspective. And so I was always watching and and men, like many other writers, I'm sure that you've talked to, cultivating that that ability to watch and to really ponder and, and sift through our, our, our creativity and our imagination and, and put it on the page can be a real asset, even though it was painful, right? Absolutely. Do you have advice to aspiring authors? I do, I do. I was thinking about this, there's, there's so much advice, right? think about what's the most important thing that maybe I haven't heard. And and I feel like our whole time today talking has been about being in relationship with, right? I think sometimes what can happen for writers is that we can look at the, the, the craft. We can look at writing as I'm working towards a product, right? I'm writing. So therefore I'm working on a story. I'm working on a novel. I'm working on something that's going to have many stages of revision, it's going to go to the marketplace, right? And that's all fine and good, of course. And I think what is much more nourishing and sustaining is to cultivate a relationship with your writing and to realize that your writing also has a relationship with you. Are you coming at your creativity with an extractive mind, right? With all the capitalism and consumerism and what are you going to do for me, imagination, right? 
We're talking about wild, unseen forces that move with us and through us. This is really powerful and exciting. How do we honor and dignify and be in relationship with those aspects and how they engage with us? So that you don't write the novel that you wanted to write this year or next year or five years from now, you are still writing. You're still in relationship with that aspect of yourself. And furthermore, you are in relationship with the components and the elements of your life that support your writing and creativity, which might mean everything from being able to take long walks where you talk to yourself, getting good sleep, having people in your life that affirm your best expression and cheer that on, right? All of these things that can seem like they don't, aren't directly related to our writing and our, to our creativity make us healthy and strong. And I believe that ultimately make us better writers and writers for the long haul, not for the next five years, but for the next three, four, five decades. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to see what you produce in the next three, four or five decades. Do you have another book you're already working on? I forgot to ask earlier, but I have some stories that I've been working with and I have an idea rumbling in the back of my head that has something to do with a collective voice. It has the we narrative, the the you plural, I think can be a really powerful tool. Women's voices, how women change when they are growing life. Mm -hmm. And again, how do we have a story where it's like, I don't want to read a book about pregnancy and you know pregnant women, right? How could I possibly play with these notions of transformation and of, of what women go through to bear life and bring life forth. So that's kind of rumbling around back there. I'm not sure how, how it's going to move forward, but I'm, I'm definitely giving it my the attention of my inner ear. Love it. Jamie, thank you. Thank you for this conversation. I feel like it really? was like, so a little like heavy, you know, like, <laughs> like, I don't know. It was great. It's like the meaning of life type of conversation, you know, where you really like think through things. So, you know, you're so absolutely soulful. I hope I could like, you know, bring it <laughs> into you know, relief or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, thank you. That was a long way to say thank you, Jamie, for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and for sharing your thoughts and feelings and, and your unique way of seeing the world, which I think is super valuable and helpful. Thank you, Zibby. I loved having time with you this morning. You really appreciate it. It's really fun. All right. Have a great day. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again to Wine, Women, and Words, the podcast for sponsoring this episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 